I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, when technology affects our jobs, it affects our votes. And that affects just about everything else. People have been tossed overboard to fend for themselves uh, rather than having a real sense of belonging and community. But the notion that workers are expendable, that belonging isn't important, that's nothing new. Uber is the waste product of that service economy. It's only possible because the rest of our work lives at Starbucks and Walmart are so bad. And there's a contrarian argument here. Tech isn't really to blame. In fact, it's got a pretty stellar track record. How do you make life better for people? That's got to be the primary focus. Technology can do that. And by and large, technology has done that, all the way back to the Stone Age. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. There are all sorts of little things that can sway an election, especially an election that's close. In 2016, slight shifts in three states that often vote Democratic, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, turned out to be especially important in handing Donald Trump an electoral college victory. An Oxford University study found that those three states would have voted for Hillary Clinton if their use of robots had been just 2% lower. And if that had happened, she'd be the president. This week, we'll talk to folks who don't agree at all as to whether the problem with the economy and all the political fallout that it's caused is technology, or whether the real problem is us. First up, Brian Alexander has chronicled how several swing states have had the effect of completely shifting our politics, from Obama to Trump to whatever comes next. He's the author of Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of an All-American Town, and he recently wrote about automation in the MIT Tech Review. Brian, welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. So your book came out in 2017 after the 2016 election, but you've continued to like report this story, particularly focusing on Ohio, which is where you're from. And obviously, we're right up against another election right now. What's your sense of whether anything has changed in the last couple of years? Yes. I I mean, I think some attitudes have changed somewhat. I think, uh, speaking specifically about Donald Trump, I think there is some chagrin among some people who voted for Trump in states like Ohio who are not pleased with his behavior. On the other hand, I think there's a reluctance to sort of admit to that because so many people, you know, who are very broadly generalized, overgeneralized as the the so-called elite or the coastal elites or whatever, have been telling people that they made this huge mistake. And so there's Mm. there's a big reluctance to admit they made a mistake. It's sort of like when you've been swindled, nobody wants to open up to it. So I think there's still a lot of support for Donald Trump, uh, almost as an act of defiance against people who are doing well. You know, often there's this uh, mocking among some of my colleagues, frankly, about, you know, they talk about, oh, economic insecurity, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, when it was really racism or something else. The fact is, it's not just economic insecurity. It's insecurity about everything. It's cultural insecurity. It's insecurity about money and politics and where they stand in the world now. Uh, The ground has shifted under their feet. 
that feeling is still there hmm. in these places and, in fact, might be stronger than ever. Hmm. Um, you read about a study that estimated that close to 700,000 jobs um, uh, had been lost to automation between 1967 and 2014. Do people feel like Donald Trump is addressing that situation in the way that maybe they hoped? No, not, not specifically automation. Automation is part of a mix of this general shifting that I just described. I don't think that they think that Donald Trump is going to be able to do much about that. In fact, they regard the coming of automation and artificial intelligence and other buzzwords that they've heard about as as inevitable as the sunrise. Okay. Uh, and there's nothing to be done about it. It's interesting that they have bought into this idea that whatever technologists in Silicon Valley says is going to happen will, in fact, happen. And it's going to mean bad things for them. They don't know what exactly bad things, but it's going to mean bad things. And they see this on the line. You know, in the MIT Tech Review story about automation, I talk a little bit about an auto parts plant in Wood County, just south of Toledo, that has about half the number of employees it used to have. And one of the reasons is because of robots. And the existing employees certainly see that. And they see that if they could be replaced, they will be replaced. And so they never know when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these places, including Toledo, which has been, you say, and this shocked me, I think is the most roboticized place in America, right? Toledo? Right. Okay. Yep. But a lot of these places have been trying for years, uh, sometimes successfully, to create programs and like pipelines for students where instead of being displaced by robots, they can be the people who maintain the robots, who work with the robots, who are the experts so that they can find a place. Do you feel like that pipeline has been working? It's beginning to work. In fact, uh, the Toledo area has really been hustling. I talk about a school called Penta, which trains, you know, sort of future workers to operate uh, robots, uh, program robots, deal with lathes and machinery and so on. They have a number of high schools that feed into them. And so you sort of complete your high school at, at this Penta Technology Career Center. They do a great job and they are training people. In fact, some kids get jobs before they've even graduated, full-time, regular, you know, career-oriented jobs. People are screaming for those sorts of skilled workers in that area right now. The worry—and and employment's good right now in the Toledo area, and the economy has come back significantly in the Toledo area. But what is worrying people is what the next thing is going to be. And so they've stressed this concept of, well, you got to be a lifelong learner— in other words, you can never be sure of anything. You've got a great job now, but tomorrow it might all fall apart because who knows what artificial intelligence is going to bring? What happens when robots start talking to each other and learning? So there is this sort of background noise of, boy, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm making $17 an hour, $18 an hour, and I'm 19 years old. This is going well. I could do this for the next 25 years, but will I be able to mm-hmm. do that? And nobody knows how to plan for that. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Brian Alexander. He's a writer and author of the book Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of the All-American Town. Um, 
To what degree do people see this? I mean, we've been talking about it so far as like this is a technological issue, right? New technology comes in and it displaces lots and lots of people. And that's certainly happened. To what degree do people think of it that way? And to what degree do people think of it as like that global business has changed, that people hire temp workers now, that, you know, in 1960, China wasn't doing a whole lot of manufacturing, right? It was basically a closed country. But boy, the playing field, right, has changed. And there's just so many more people competing to say, well, I'll manufacture things, I'll do things. I don't think that the average uh, plant worker thinks of it in that specific of a way. I think they regard it as a lot has changed and a lot continues to change. They don't fully understand what the specifics of this change are. They just know that it's not good for them. <laughs> and, and they may not know much about artificial intelligence, for example, but they've heard the term and they know that they are increasingly disposable. They feel that in their bones. Hmm. And something that I think that technology evangelists really forget about is that this is a sociocultural moment. People don't work for money if they can help it. What they work for is pride, a sense of accomplishment, a feeling that they're contributing something. This is a lot deeper than whether or not I've got a job and whether or not the job pays enough. It's who am I? In America, we are defined by the work we do. You, know, you introduce yourself to a party and you say, oh, well, I'm a writer or I'm right, a, 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 right. a radio show host. Right. The, the, the Silicon Valley forgets about this and yeah. says, oh, well, you know, we'll give them universal basic income. Well, that doesn't solve this problem. Do you see that yourself? Like, you know, you grew up in Ohio. You don't live there anymore, but you have gone back for sometimes large periods of time to, to do this writing. Do you see that change? Like if you were talking to nobody else... Can you perceive that change yourself? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no question about it. What's what's changed? Like how how do you feel like the Ohio of your childhood is different? You know, if you aren't from a small town, and I think I think it's true not just of Ohio, but any place where where you maybe grew up in a small town, there was a a special kind of social cohesiveness that has really eroded all over this country. And I think people have a great longing for that, a longing for community. And the fallout from this lack of social cohesiveness is obvious. People are have been tossed overboard to fend for themselves rather than having a real sense of belonging and community. You know, what we ought to do, I think, is sort of question some very basic premises about what we want modern-day capitalism to look like, what's it supposed to do for us. We've done a good job in this country of, for example, destroying unions. A lot of people's sort of social cohesiveness, their lives, their connections, their sense of community came from unions. It came from their place of work. It came from their their civic organizations. A lot of that has disappeared or is in the process of disappearing. I mean, you're talking about like the, the fabric of community breaking apart. Does that all come back to sort of finances and economics and jobs? Yes. Which, which in some uh, sense I, I, comes I, back to technology. Yes, yeah, precisely. And, and that's where I think technology plays into this. You know, we've been rushing headlong 
into a technological future. I mean, I guess you could make the argument we've been doing it ever since the Industrial Revolution started, but but it has especially accelerated, it seems to me, since the late 1970s uh, and the early 80s. And at first, it seemed like great promise. And there have obviously been many benefits of all this technological change. But I think one of the very destructive parts of it has been that it has contributed to this erosion of community. You know, we talk about social networks um, and how people can form online communities. That's not a replacement by any means. In fact, in my opinion, it has actually destroyed some real-life communities. What does your reporting indicate to you about where we're headed, both sort of economically and politically, in the kinds of places, particularly in Ohio, but across the industrial Midwest, where you've done a lot of your reporting and where you've lived for a long time? Well, I think that these areas are still up for discussion. I don't think they are solidly Trump areas. They're certainly not solidly Democrat areas necessarily. You know, it's interesting. Sherrod Brown is a liberal Democratic senator from Ohio. Ohio went for Trump. It looks like uh, Sherrod Brown will win his reelection in the coming midterms sort of walking away. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that? Mm -hmm. Why does Sherrod Brown stand a very good chance of winning somewhat easily in a state that voted overall for Donald Trump. One of the reasons is because he shows up. He shows up at plant doors. And I think a lot of Democrats have failed at retail politics and have failed to listen to people in these areas. Brian Alexander is the author of Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of an All-American Town. He recently wrote about automation in MIT Tech Review, which we will link to on our website. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. As we go through this week's show, we're going to hear all sorts of takes on what tech does to our jobs. But we want to know, what has tech done to your job? Has it made it easier? Has it eliminated it? Tell us your story. You can tweet me at Kara E. Miller, or you can tweet the show at iHubRadio. If you're a teacher, the work you do may not be all that different from the work a teacher did 70 years ago, at least in the sense that you work in a classroom and there are students. That's also true in many ways for doctors and mail carriers and waiters, but it isn't true for people who drive for Uber or who do odds and ends assigned to them by the website TaskRabbit or who deliver takeout that gets ordered on Grubhub. So what's the dividing line between the jobs that have stayed fairly steady and those that are new on the scene? Well, technology, obviously. Except, says historian Lewis Hyman, not really. He says American businesses have loved the idea of freelancing for a long time, not just in this era of Internet startups and very low unemployment rates. And the shift in the economy that we're seeing, it's not about tech. It's about us and the choices we make. Lewis Hyman is an associate professor of economic history at Cornell University. He's the author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. Lewis, thanks for your time. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So when you hear people say things, and I'm sure this comes across uh, your desk every now and again, but people saying, you know, like, 
gee, because of the Internet, you know, so much work is now cobbled together and there's not that much security. There's so much freelancing. What do you think when you hear that kind of complaint? It's really interesting to me because there's a way in which technology acquires sort of an air of inevitability, that there's nothing that can be done. This is just the future. It's algorithms and futuristic robots. And in the book, I really push back against this pretty strongly, that technology is neutral. It solves business problems. Tech doesn't drive change. It consolidates it. And things that you think happened in the last few years that are being driven by apps are really the byproduct of, you know, the rise of a certain kind of service economy that has been insecure, increasingly insecure and unequal for quite some time. Hmm. So you wouldn't say then, I guess, that technology has always driven things. I mean, I think people think like, Technology is the reason we had the Industrial Revolution, right? That if the, you hadn't had automatic looms, then that never would have happened. And that the Internet is, like I said, you know, the reason that all this temporary work has happened. You just sort of don't buy that argument. I don't. And I don't okay. think many historians do either. It's really important to realize. And it's and it's the story we're told. So there's a reason why people think it's not just because they're you know confused. It, this is the story we're told. It's a story of progress. It's a story of technology, you know, the cotton gin and the steam engine and the railroad. But before all that was made possible, there was a social reorganization of people uh, from their homes into the factories. And the what historians call the Industrious Revolution, which preceded the Industrial Revolution by about 100 years. The Industrious this, Revolution. The Industrious Revolution. Okay, Not that it. people became suddenly moral and hardworking, okay. uh, but that they were put into rooms together and supervised. And, you know, they were weaving textiles. They were, you know, making pots, pottery. And it had nothing to do with technology. It had to do with simply organizing people in a row and watching them. This is where Adam Smith's famous example of pin manufacturing came from, right? It wasn't, you know, the idea of division of labor that, you know, one person could make, you know, if you or I sat down to make a pin, we could make like three pins. I could make zero pins. I'm not very handy. I could make zero also, but but let's assume we knew more what we were doing. Exactly. (laughs) But if you sit down 30 people and you break down that process into separate steps, suddenly, oh, maybe I can... I can definitely hit something in a certain way again and again and again. And that de-skilling of work, that division of labor, this is the foundation of capitalism in a lot of ways. It's one of the foundations of capitalism. And this is what we're seeing today, that the corporation fundamentally was reorganized sometime between 1970 and 1980 in a new way that created more insecure lives for the rest of us. And Uber is the waste product of that service economy. It's the, it's only possible because the rest of our work lives at Starbucks and Walmart are so bad. Hmm. So if what you're saying is, in some sense, factories were created before the kinds of factories we think about, where so many things are automatic and electric powered, talk about then how the gig economy was there before even before the internet, forget Uber, the internet ever came along, but it was really there before. Absolutely. So in the book, I talk about temp jobs. And by temp jobs, I mean jobs that are loosely affiliated with a corporation or a, a workplace. And you can see them in all kinds of ways, from consultants, which are well-paid, to temps, which are run through an agency, to migrant laborers. 
which are pretty much shut out of any kind of legal protections or workplace rights. So this story really begins after World War II, when the first temp agencies come into being, when the first consultancies really come to the foreground. So here I'm talking about Manpower Incorporated as the forerunner of the temp agency and McKinsey and Company as the forerunner of consultants. And of course, at the same time, the Braceros program, which brought guest workers from Mexico to the U.S. for the very first time. Talk a little bit about Manpower, uh, which is still going strong. It's a company that exists today. But it started in the 1940s, way before we think about the gig economy. Just talk about, like, the guy who started it and what it was hoping to do and sort of how it ended up changing America. So all these different kinds of temp work really were about supporting that post-war corporation that was focused on security, focused on stability and long-term jobs. And so the founder of Manpower Incorporated, Elmer Winter, was a lawyer in Milwaukee. And one day he had a crisis where he needed a secretary to type up some legal notes. And he didn't have one. So he called around. He couldn't find somebody. And he realized that this was not a problem. This was an opportunity, like so many entrepreneurs. And so he founded Manpower as a way to supply emergency replacement labor for business executives and for companies. And this was a tremendous growth business. They ex- exploded through the 1950s. By the 19, end of the 1950s, he realized there was a limit to how often secretaries got sick or mm. you know, people went on vacation. And he began to imagine a different kind of workforce, of workforce that could come in as needed, that could be a permanently temporary workforce. And yet people didn't do it. And they didn't do it because of a few reasons. They didn't have the experience with it. They trusted the people that they knew. And they didn't quite believe that that was the purpose of the company. The purpose of the company was to provide security, to provide long-term investment, and all the things that are missing in the meaning of the corporation today. So then how did he, how did manpower convince corporations to take that next step, not just, you know, replace somebody while they were having surgery or like you said, like went on vacation, but, um, you know, gee, a lot of your workplace or a lot of the people who work, you know, with you, they're interchangeable. You don't have to like make a full-time commitment to them. What happened was, the first, that there was something called the computer that became really important in the mid-1960s, especially the System 360 by IBM. And corporations were entranced by it. They were entranced by this idea of moving all their paper records to digital records. And, or rather, I guess analog since it was magnetic tape. But this is this, is, this requires a huge amount of work. And so they looked to manpower to make that transition. And they hired you know, shifts and shifts and shifts of women as data entry operators. And they were like, wow, that's amazing. We could just take something that's important to us and then just hire manpower to do it. And they had this experience with outsourcing for the very first time, something that was core to their own business. So this is an experience that lots of corporations are having in the late 1960s. And then comes a huge crisis in 1969, an intellectual crisis for the corporation, where suddenly the conglomerate, which had been the sort of uh, bell of the ball through the 1960s as the sort of you know futuristic way to run a business, all these big conglomerates begin to collapse. And into that gap comes 
McKinsey and Manpower and other kinds of business gurus selling new ideas on how to organize the firm and, of course, the workforce. Hmm. You said all these women came in uh, when uh, records started getting put onto computers because they knew how to do things. They You could hire them through Manpower. Where did these women come from? Like they weren't they weren't working before and then they were working or like where did manpower get these legions of people who I guess were willing to change their lives to start working on computers? There was a rehearsal for our contemporary economy in the post-war and it was done through women, through people of color, through migrants and you know the the people who were deserving of secure work, of respected work um, were white men in the post-war. You know, these are the people whose jobs were protected, whose incomes were valued. And for married women, initially in the 1940s, it was married women who were looking to make some extra money, or at least that's the idea that they were selling at Manpower. Of course, lots of women had to work uh, that were single, even if they were, were married, if they were white women. And of course, African-American women have always worked. But it's this idea of disposability, this idea that you don't have to pay them as much, you don't have to guarantee them secure employment, you don't even have to respect them as anything but cogs in a wheel. And this makes manpower's business possible. And it becomes a model for how to think about people who can be brought in and do the work next to your regular workers, but also not quite be part of the firm and not quite count as much. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Lewis Hyman, Associate Professor of Economic History at Cornell. He's the author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. One of the questions I always have around this issue of, like, the gig economy, temp workers, is, like, how mainstream is it, the idea of cobbling things together and not having kind of the traditional job with healthcare? And you write, and I found this uh, incredible, quote, in the last 10 years, 94% of net new jobs have appeared outside of traditional employment. Already approximately one-third of workers, half of young workers, participate in this alternative world of work. So it sounds like you're saying it's a pretty big chunk of the jobs that are coming on the scene now. It's a huge part. It's the place where there are jobs being created. And, you know, it's it's kind of shocking because most people still have as their primary job, about 80% of the workforce, as their primary job, just a regular W-2 job where mm -hmm. you have a boss and you go to work. But 80 percent people, 80 percent. Yeah. Like that. So OK. That, yeah. Yeah. And then but then a lot of those people supplement it with different kinds of freelancing or gig work. And then there's just a large chunk of young people who are this is how they live. They cobble together. They hustle. They put together lots of different little side gigs. And it's certainly the, the place where the economy is growing. You talk about um, a system that kind of manages this this gig world in a way, um, or that helps to, um, called the Chrono System. And um, I wonder if you will talk a little bit about what that system does. A lot of people probably have not heard of this. Yeah, there's people who have heard of it because they use it every day, and mm -hmm. then there's people with salary jobs who have never heard of it. And it's hard. It is so hard for people with salaries to understand the financial and working lives of shift workers, you know, many, many, you know, about, you know, 30% uh, 30, 30 of the sort of workforce who basically don't know when they're going to work that week. They don't, if you are working at a restaurant, if you're working, 
in retail, you may not know when your shift is going to be that, that week. So how do you plan for, and Kronos is a workforce management tool. It's like a time card, an electronic time card. And what they do is they say, all right, well, when are customers coming into the coffee shop? Well, we'll have most workers then, and we can predict it using software. And that's when we'll schedule them. And those schedules can shift from week to week, depending on what the algorithms say, depending on who has, you know, worked a lot in the past week. They want to make sure to keep workers from getting overtime, from even qualifying as full-time workers so they don't have to be paid healthcare. And this is incredibly disruptive for working people in two ways. The first way is they can't plan for another job. So even if they wanted to have another part-time job, this scheduling software is largely one-sided. And, hmm. you know, that is tricky. Um, so they can't plan for another job. They can't plan for childcare. They can't plan for education. So a lot of the things that we say, well, why don't they just get go to school? Well, you can't go to school if you don't know when your shift is right. ever. Right. And the other part of it is the volatility of income. So we talk a lot in this country about income inequality. We talk less about income volatility. And there was this amazing study done uh, a couple years ago by J.P. Morgan, that left-wing bastion of radical thought. <laughs> J.P. Morgan, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they found that for average households, median households in America, a little over half of those households have month-to-month fluctuations of 30% in their income. 30%. So yeah, just try to imagine huge to budgeting. plan for bills or... Yeah. yeah. And... Most, the vast majority, about 80% of that fluctuation is driven by shifts. It's driven by whether or not you get paid, uh, whether or not you get enough hours that month. And so it's just a very different life than most of those who are in the top 20%, the salaried professional class, really experience. And it's, it's a very frightening and insecure life. So, you know, we've talked about how... Um, The gig economy in many ways is not the least bit new, uh, certainly not for women, certainly not for, you know, migrant farm laborers. Um, But but for the population as a whole, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a newer thing. Where does where do things go from here? I mean, not not necessarily where you'd want to see them go, but where like looking into the crystal ball, do you think they're really going to be in 5, 10, 15 years? Well, I think whenever the next crisis, economic crisis happens, we're going to see just a wholesale shift. So one of the things you mentioned before was the unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, economists are debating right now over whether we should use that to understand people who don't have work or whether we should understand labor force participation rates. And we know that participation in the labor force has dropped about between 6 and 8% since 2008. So there's a whole swath of people who are just not working. And in the next recession, we're going to see that again. And then the jobs are going to be created are freelance jobs. And we're going to have to figure out a way to support people as they enter the workforce to say, look, you're not going to get a traditional job, but you're going to have to find a way to make it work in this new economy. And I think that on the left and the right, in the book, I lay out both a conservative and a liberal approach to this. Because I think it's important that there is this nostalgia, but we need to realize that world is gone, but we need to make this world we live in now work for us and not hope for a future that may or may not come. I don't know whether, you know, AI robots are in our future, but I do know that we have income volatility and we have joblessness 
And we have also the ways to make that work for people if we just sort of get together and do it. Lewis Hyman is the author of Temp, How American Work, American Business, and the American Dream Became Temporary. He's also an associate professor of economic history at Cornell. Lewis, thank you so much. This is great. A real pleasure. Thank you. As Hyman mentioned near the beginning of our discussion, while many temp workers get low wages, plenty do very well. On our website, we'll have more about temps who love their jobs, love dictating their hours, not having a boss. That's at innovationhub.org. Well, let me tell you something, all that glitters and gold. It's been a long old trouble, long old troublesome road. And I'm looking for somebody coming help me tear this Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You know, we've been rushing headlong into a technological future. I mean, I guess you could make the argument we've been doing it ever since the Industrial Revolution started, but but it has especially accelerated, it seems to me, since the late 1970s uh, and the early 80s. That's author Brian Alexander, who I talked to earlier in the show about how much new technology like automation and robotics has upended jobs and communities, especially in places like Ohio, where he grew up. And at first, it seemed like great promise. And there have obviously been many benefits of all this technological change. But I think one of the very destructive parts of it has been that it has contributed to this erosion of community. That erosion, Alexander says, has been particularly powerful in states where factories have substituted robots for people and where solid blue-collar jobs now feel scarce. But for those who are part of building the technology that drives our lives, these sorts of changes have been going on for, well, ever. In the early 80s, the job of being a switchboard operator was on its way out. Daniel Theobald co-founded the robotics company Vecna, and he now serves as their chief innovation officer. I think in 1984, AT&T had 40,000 switchboard operators Today, you know, a handful at most. And nobody really uh, that I know of is really lamenting the loss of the ability to sit behind a desk and plug wires in and out of a switchboard all day long. It wasn't great work. But the other side of the equation is really interesting, for me at least. And that is, if you were to try and handle today's communications using switchboard operators, it would take many, many times the population of the entire Earth. Technologies, Theobald argues, change. They always have. People who made their living constructing horse-drawn carriages, who made dresses to order, who had hat shops at a time when men and women thought it was undignified to go out without a hat, all those jobs, more or less, ultimately came to an end. You can't turn back time. You know, we have $1.776 trillion of R&D investment globally. 75% of that is outside of the United States. 90% of all the science and scientists and engineers who've ever lived are alive today. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research Melissa Flagg says that even if America wanted to stop the advance of the sorts of technologies that can lead to fewer workers and car manufacturing plants... We couldn't, really. The economy is too globalized. This time that we're hearkening back to doesn't exist. And so the question isn't, 
oh, we've rushed into it, the world has already gone there. And in order for us to think about fundamentally improving the lives of the next several generations, we have to actually ask them to help us figure out how do you transform or or build totally new types of communities. I do think we're going to have to accept that as new things are created, some things that we remember with nostalgia will no longer exist. Flag is now the Northeast Regional Lead at the U.S. Army Research Laboratory. And she and Daniel Theobald, who started the robotics company, agree that the march of technology offers incredible potential for making our lives better. But in the short term, they say, our responsibility is to pay a lot more attention to people who have been displaced. You know, when that, when that person who has been working a certain type of job almost all of their life feels threatened that the world is going to change because of technology, that's a real issue, and that's a real hard issue to deal with. So, uh, you know, we need to do a better job in this country of taking care of those people, of training workers, of retraining workers, of having continuing education. But to to blame the robots um, ultimately is counterproductive because we will end up in a place where we can't take care of the exact people that, that we're trying to protect. Do you feel like, I mean, you've spent... I think, pretty much your entire adult life making robots. Does it feel strange when you hear all the sort of coverage in politics, in the media about automation and, and, you know, people feeling really alienated and upset because of sort of what technology and robotics are doing? Does it feel weird to be a person who creates robots? Yeah, it does. You know, and one thing that... uh is really important for me throughout that through all that period of building robots as well, is we've really been focused on this idea of how do you empower humanity? How do you make life better for people? That's got to be the primary focus. And I believe very strongly that technology can do that. And by and large, technology has done that all the way back to the Stone Age. Um, Melissa, uh, I know you grew up in Missouri um, and your family had and actually has now uh, a cotton farm in Arkansas. Talk about what you see, not in Silicon Valley, not maybe in Boston or New York, uh, but there. So my hometown, Sykeston, trucking is the main industry there. So there's a lot of conversation that I've had with folks who I know who live in Sykeston and their thoughts about listening to conversations about automation. And they're scared and, and angry that people talk about it like it's exciting rather than talking about the impact. When I go to the farm... The flip side is it's allowed small farms to continue to exist and to actually make enough money to be relevant for families in ways that we couldn't have otherwise because having precision grading and no-till farming and, quite frankly, Roundup Ready cotton and things like this that have allowed us to do farming with fewer people, right? I mean, those tractors are basically robots that have satellite precision, you know, place the input here. And so it's kind of incredible to see both sides of it, right? It's really enabled individual families to farm in a way that they could never have done. And it's increased the yield of this land by just tremendous amounts. On the other side, right, you you see people losing jobs. And so I think when you start to have those conversations across communities in the same town, it's really exciting, Because then you start to see these debates between people who really trust each other. And that's an intriguing, again, it's it's that having the technologists in charge of the conversation is tricky. And you learn this in DOD because 
every single thing that a soldier or an airman or a sailor or a marine uses, a ship, a, a jet, right, a submarine, there are these incredible pieces of technology. But these are kids that came out of my hometown, right? And we've trained them to be in this universe and incredibly high tech. And so there are these incredible translators between, hey, you know, it can enable you and you can use it in amazing ways and you don't have to be a PhD computer scientist to do it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Daniel Theobald, co-founder and chief innovation officer of Vecna Robotics, and Melissa Flagg, the Northeast Regional Lead at the U.S. Army Research Lab. Daniel, let's talk about another strand of this conversation, uh, which I think probably doesn't get talked a a lot about um, in in most media um, because we're very busy having the jobs and technology conversation. But I wonder how much people in technology worry um, that the U.S., and maybe because of some of these concerns, is falling behind in the world in terms of robotics and automation, or or, no, are we doing great and don't worry about it? You know, because we have a very high standard of living here, and because, you know, we're several generations in from significant events in the world, like World War II, etc., we sometimes forget that the prosperity we have here in the U.S., was hard fought. It wasn't something that just magically happened because, you know, Americans are the smartest uh, people in the world. That's not the case at all. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, we need to think about the larger global community and helping everybody do well. But there are a lot of economies out there that are highly, highly motivated to win, to um, improve their standard of living, to invest heavily in robotics and technology, because what they realize is, Whoever owns that technology at the end of the day is going to have a leg up on every other region in the world. Hmm. Melissa, do you share those concerns? Do you worry that the U.S. is falling behind when it comes to sort of creating cutting-edge technology? So everyone wants me to say I agree. I I feel really contrarian about this. The amount of funding going into research and development around the world is so big. I mean, $1.776 trillion. Can you wrap your head around that number? I can't. Yeah, I don't think anybody can. And so if I add $4 billion more to robotics in America, I mean, in a sea of $1.776 trillion, have I made us the winner of robotics in the world? It's not a binary race, right? It's, it's a we want to be able to leverage these discoveries and technologies in really creative ways that people want to get from us, right? And they're willing to pay us money for them. And that make people want to live in this country and to have a good quality of life. I just don't believe that this is a money problem. I think that we've become trained that if you have a complex problem, like big systemic change, spend money. So if I'm going to compete, say, with, I don't know, for instance, China, because they're on a very steep trajectory. And they're pouring a lot of money into this, right? Pouring a lot of money into it, and they're pouring a lot of money into research and development in general and educating people. But they have a very top-down system. They go with a strategy where people get in a room, they decide this is what we're going to do, they put money into it, and they send people out and say, do this. That's really not why we've been as competitive as we've been as a nation. We're very diverse. We're very bottom-up. We're very about much about competition. And it means that we look messy. And 
it's not controlled by the top, but it's also been extremely effective. And it allows for an incredible amount of creativity and incredibly new ways to develop that we couldn't have imagined if we were just sitting around in a room in the Pentagon or, you know, at the White House or wherever. So I actually am very bullish, but we have to remember to train people to think. So I'm actually more, I'm less worried about money and about falling behind in technology. I'm more worried that by trying to get people to do what we tell them to do, that we're actually training people to think in terms of small amounts of money and getting into a strategy and getting access to a grant and getting people to give them more money than we are about what is the craziest, most exciting idea you can imagine. Does that mean, are you saying change the educational system? I think this is more about training people to think and supporting that creativity into crazy ideas and team building around much bigger ideas rather than just training graduate students to go after a grant from the government because all of their ideas magically seem to be exactly the size of the money they think they can get from me. (laughs) Be bigger than that. Finally, let me ask both of you, since you'd spend your time thinking about, in some ways, what the future is going to look like, helping to build the future, uh, thinking about, you know, what's getting funded and what's not. Where do you think things are going? Like, in a sort of realistic way, what do you see unfolding? Melissa, you want to start? I think that there's a really interesting convergence of data analytics and data sciences in almost every single aspect of our lives. And I think that we're generating volumes of information and data now that we can't imagine. And there are going to be a lot of civil liberties issues and privacy issues, and we're going to be we're going to be challenged by this over the over the coming decades. But there are also going to be these incredible opportunities to go beyond what the human mind can do, right? And so, I think there are going to be all of these opportunities that honestly we can't even imagine to do really discovery-based efforts to totally totally change the way we think about the world, how we engage in the world, how we engage in medicine, how we think about um, identifying our cancer based on pattern analysis of data, how we think about everything from dating to, you know, cancer treatment. To me, it's all data and data analytics. These cows are out of the barn already, so to speak, but how do we actually begin to wrap our heads around what this means? To me, this is one of the most interesting and exciting things. And when I look at the Department of Defense and I look at how how we think about data, I mean, I've heard two generals recently say data is the new oil. And wow. and we're not treating it like this this national treasure and this national asset that it is. And I think some nations are thinking about it that way. And so I'm very interested and very excited. And and uh, humbled a little bit by the sheer volume of data we're producing and how we may not be harnessing it. Uh, Daniel, do you want to give us a glimpse from your point of view into the future? Yeah, I'm very optimistic, Kara. Um, I think the communication and the dialogue is probably one of the most important things. The problem with the future is that it's unknown to some extent, and that can create fear. We, we were deploying robots at, a, you know, a, a very large shipper. We show up there and, um, you know, are, are meeting directly with the workers. Immediate first reaction is, oh, bringing in robots, when am I getting my pink card? And uh, the really interesting dynamic happened there. Um, you know, the, the representative from the organization said, nobody's getting fired. We're bringing in this technology to make your job better because we're having a hard time holding on to workers. Right? We can't find enough workers to do this work, so we're trying to make the job better. 
We're trying to make it so that you want to be here. And that changed their attitude. But then what changed their attitude even more is we said, hey, come up here, touch the robot. Look how easy it is to program it. Um, and as soon as they touched the robot and, and that uncertainty, that unknown started to fade away, the attitude completely changed, 180. And uh, one worker in particular, I remember very well, started, you know, interacting with the robot, you know, touching the touch screen, giving it tasks. And he said, wow, this is really cool. This is easy. This is going to make my job so much better. Hey, if I learn how to do this, do you think that I could then go and train other people how to do it? Right? So it turned from fear of the future to now excitement about what could the future be and how is it going to help me you know, do better? And uh, that, that was really exciting to me. And, and I think that's really what ends up happening. But we, we have this sort of worst case scenario fear a lot of times. And, and the best way to address that is through things like this, your show, talking about it, um, you know, helping people to understand that we have a decision on how we use technology. And if we focus on improving lives, um, not just making money, it's going to be a really good thing. Daniel Theobald is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of VecNet Robotics. And Melissa Flagg is the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for research. She's now the Northeast regional lead at the U.S. Army Research Laboratory. Thanks very much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to hear your stories of work and technology. Do you feel like tech has helped you out at work? Tell us your story. You can email us at innovationhub at wgbh.org or tweet us at iHubRadio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help from Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.